The Hamlet Podcast, episode 46. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanretty. This week, we reach one of the most startling moments in the play, as Macbeth's encounter with the witches comes to a very dramatic conclusion. Last time, we got to see the three visions that the weird sisters conjured for him, an armoured head that told Macbeth to beware the fane of Fife, Macduff, a bloody child that told him that none of woman born can harm Macbeth, and then a crowned child that reassured Macbeth that he will never be defeated until Burnham Wood comes against him at Dunsinane. All told, these seem like good news, confirmation that Macbeth's suspicions of Macduff are valid, and then these two proclamations that must make Macbeth feel quite invincible. As the third apparition descends, according to the stage directions, Macbeth speaks again. He's still giddy with excitement and eagerness to hear everything the witches have to tell him. Earlier in this scene we saw the first witch answer Macbeth in his rhythm and then convert proceedings into her own rhythm. Now we see just how seduced Macbeth has been. He responds in the same rhyming couplets that all three apparitions have used. Macbeth answers in this same rhyming scheme. You might hardly notice that it's happening, but it's so unusual in this play whose verse has been so free and so dynamic that we have to pay attention. Macbeth completes the apparition's line about Burnham Wood, forms his own new rhyme, and continues. That will never be. Who can impress the forest, bid the tree unfix his earth-bound root? Sweet bodement's good. Rebellion's head rise never till the wood of Burnham rise, and our high-placed Macbeth shall live the lease of nature, pay his breath to time and mortal custom. Yet my heart throbs to know one thing. Tell me if your art can tell so much. Shall Banquo's issue ever reign in this kingdom? It's quite understandable that Macbeth should believe that an ancient forest is very unlikely to uproot itself and travel several miles towards a castle in the distance. As Macbeth says, that will never be. As he sees it, nobody can command a forest or tell a tree to dig itself and go for a walk. So these prophecies, or sweet bodements as he calls them, are good. He's relieved. In some editions, you might read Rebellion's Head in the next line, a suggested correction that implies Macbeth won't fear any rebellion until Burnham Wood goes for this walk. But the folio text actually reads Rebellious Dead Rise Never Till the Wood of Burnham Rise. This is a more interesting use of the verb rise, and one we've already had. We have to bear in mind that Macbeth has already seen a man come back from the dead, Banquo appeared at the dinner party when Macbeth knew well that he'd been left in a ditch. Macbeth lamented a few scenes back that death was not an end any more. Now, he said, they rise again with twenty mortal murders on their crowns. So to me it feels much more interesting that the prophecy is soothing his fears. Rebellious dead, spirits that rebel against nature and come back from the dead to haunt the living, can no longer scare him. And now Macbeth speaks in the third person, which is often a self-aggrandizing thing to do. 
Everybody has been referring to Macbeth already in this scene, so now it's his turn to do so. Our high-placed Macbeth, he says, shall live the lease of nature, pay his breath to time and mortal custom. This kind of picks up the legal language that we discussed in the previous episode. Macbeth is confident that he will live out a long natural life and, he hopes, die an old man. If he lives the lease of nature, it means that he won't be killed or have his life cut short. Mortal custom is a way of implying a natural death, instead of death on the battlefield or, indeed, assassination. Macbeth would really like to live in an ordered, calm world, enjoying the golden opinions of all sorts of people. But before he can relax and enjoy this hopeful future the witches seem to be promising, he has to ask for more. He says his heart throbs to know one thing more. It's always just that one thing more, isn't it? He challenges the witches, a good tactic, asking for something if their art can even manage to tell him this much. He wants to know if Banquo's issue shall ever reign. Fleance is the one that got away, and ever since the first act prophecies told Banquo that his children would be kings, Macbeth has been haunted by this possibility. The witches, as one, tell him, seek to know no more. One has to wonder how the story might have gone if Macbeth listened and took this as an answer. But of course he does not. He insists, I will be satisfied. Deny me this and an eternal curse fall on you. Let me know. It seems like a bit of an empty threat to promise eternal curses on three such powerful witches, but they do Macbeth's bidding and agree to let him know what he's so eager to know. Macbeth himself gives us some stage directions now. He asks, why sinks that cauldron and what noise is this? This would appear to be pretty good evidence for the cauldron dramatically sinking into the stage floor and some loud noise accompanying the setup for the one remaining apparition. The stage directions gives us oboes again. These are often used in Shakespeare to herald ominous events or the arrival of royalty. In this case, it's a little of both. The three witches each shout show, and then the three of them, or however many witches are on stage making this dark pageant happen, All say, show his eyes and grieve his heart. Come like shadows, so depart. This is clearly telling us that what's coming is going to make Macbeth a lot less happy than the three earlier bits of news. Grieve his heart, it will. The stage directions tell us that we now see a show of eight kings, the last with a glass in his hand, and Banquo. Now... Eight is a very specific number, and a nuisance for any theatre company trying to put on this play, since you need a lot of bodies on stage. But why eight kings? If you look at the historical line of Scottish succession, try saying that fast, you can see that there were a great many kings after Macbeth. For starters, you might even see that Macbeth was succeeded by his own unfortunate stepson. This is anything but a spoiler for the play, mind you. After the historical Macbeth, Scotland had about 25 monarchs, down as far as King James VI, now also James I of England and Shakespeare's patron. So where does the number eight come in? Well, 
For that, we have to sidestep history and refer again to Shakespeare's other source, Holinshed's Chronicles. Here we find that Fleance, having escaped successfully to England and avoided getting killed, will grow up and get married and have a son. This child will also survive infancy and grow up to be the steward of the King of Scotland. We aren't told which one. But, thanks to this important position, somehow the title becomes the family surname. A few centuries after Macbeth, Walter Stuart by now the sixth High Steward of Scotland, and the head of a noble line of that new surname, married Marjorie, daughter of King Robert the Bruce. Walter and Marjorie had a son, also Robert, who became Robert II of Scotland, the first of the House of Stuart, to sit on the throne. The connection that goes from Fleance to Walter Stuart is a little convenient and a little fuzzy, but what's important for us is that if you count from Robert II forwards through history, having leapt over about 17 other Scottish monarchs, you have Robert II, Robert III, James I, James II, III, IV and V, and then Mary, Queen of Scots. You guessed it. Eight monarchs, leading all the way to King James VI, possibly sitting in the audience. And since it would be scandalous to put the sitting monarch on the stage in a play, and extremely foolhardy to put a figure so contentious as his mother, Queen Mary, on it, Shakespeare blurs the lines by having the eighth of these shadowy, regal figures enter carrying a glass. If King James was in the audience, he would have seen himself reflected in this mirror, which is a rather brilliant piece of stagecraft. Of course, this elaborate pageant would really only have been this meaningful on perhaps the one occasion that Shakespeare's company actually performed the play before the king. When there's no King James in the audience, the Stuart lineage and the mirror do seem to be a little less extraordinary and maybe a little less exciting. But this is why Banquo shows up after them. He comes on last and he seems to indicate that they are all his descendants. So Macbeth's nightmare continues. The witches are indicating that, yes, the seed of Banquo will be kings for many future generations. Shakespeare takes Hollandshed's invented characters of Banquo and Fleance and makes a tremendous show for the king. Who wouldn't be flattered seeing this representation of his entire royal line on stage? As for the glass or the mirror, there are various stories out there about royal glasses, orbs and mirrors that had magical powers and properties. Perhaps these might somehow explain the glass in the hands of the final figure in the parade, but personally I think it's just a piece of very shrewd stagecraft. Whether or not it caught the image of King James, it could also be used to reflect the line of kings that precede this eighth figure, so doubling the line of these descendants of Banquo and suggesting they'll continue long into the future. For the record, there are still members of the extended House of Stuart alive across Europe today. We can't ever really know, so it is a lot of conjecture, but it's thrilling to think that Shakespeare might have flattered King James to this extent, giving him a Scottish play filled with witches, his favourite, and such a dramatic presentation of the myth of his family's origins. So, having given you all of this background information to mull over, I should probably return to the text. 
Macbeth is unable to hold his tongue and all but narrates the entire dumb show for us as they appear. Thou art too like the spirit of Banquo, down, thy crown does sear mine eyeballs, and thy hair, thou other gold-bound brow, is like the first, a third is like the former. Filthy hags, why do you show me this? A fourth, oh, start eyes, what, will the line stretch out to the crack of doom? Another yet, a seventh, I'll see no more. And yet the eighth appears, who bears a glass which shows me many more. And some I see that twofold balls and treble sceptres carry. Horrible sight. Now I see tis true, for the blood-boltered Banquo smiles upon me and points at them for his. What, is this so? Shakespeare wants us to think immediately that these eight monarchs all look like Banquo. It's a smart thing to put in our minds, since they are supposed to be his descendants. Macbeth is immediately upset by what he sees. The first is too much like the spirit of Banquo. He tries to dismiss it, since seeing someone who looks like Banquo, wearing a crown, sears his eyeballs. Then another gold-bound brow appears, also looking like part of the family. A third is like those that have appeared already. Three is the number that sets everything off in this play, and so it's after three of these that Macbeth turns to the witches and calls them filthy hags for showing him something this bad. Of course, he asked for it. The witches don't respond, because by now the fourth in the line is appearing. Macbeth is getting desperate, worrying that this line of descendants might extend to the crack of doom, the end of the world. Five has gone by as he worried about this, and now sixth, and now a seventh. He wants out, wishing to see no more. But yet the eighth appears. This technically should be Mary, Queen of Scots, but I have yet to see a production brave, expensive or nerdy enough to bring her on holding this mirror. As Macbeth sees it, the mirror reflects the others, showing him many more descendants to come. He sees some of them with twofold balls and triple scepters. Again, the king in the mirror, whether King James is there or not, is the one that becomes king of two countries, England and Scotland. And the three scepters, well, the phrase is contested, but it could be the three points in a crown, or perhaps it could be England, Scotland and Wales, since James has become king of all three. James's unification of the entire landmass of Great Britain was a major moment in history. Macbeth is increasingly distressed here, seeing Banquo's descendants not just surviving, but apparently expanding their domain. A horrible sight, he says. And now he gets confirmation of it, since this last figure to appear, behind all these people who look like Banquo, is Banquo himself. Banquo is still blood-boltered, covered in blood clots and wounds after the twenty gashes that killed him. But now he is smiling in triumph at Macbeth, pointing at this line of descendants and claiming them as his own. Macbeth, who, lest we forget, has no children, is utterly dismayed. At the height of this disastrous vision, the apparitions vanish. Macbeth can hardly believe what he's seen, and asks, What? Is this so? The first witch answers, I, sir, all this is so. But why stands Macbeth thus amazedly? 
Come, sisters, cheer we up his sprites, and show the best of our delights. I'll charm the air to give a sound, while you perform your antique round. That this great king may kindly say, our duties did his welcome pay. The witch confirms that yes, all this is so, implying that yes, this is what will happen in the future. There may even be a tinge of mockery in the way that she uses Macbeth's name, saying, why stands Macbeth so amazedly? He was high-placed Macbeth in his own words only moments ago, and now he's standing there, speechless at last, amazed and horrified. She falls back into her sing-song rhyme and calls on the other witches to cheer him up. They'll show him the best of their delights. She'll charm the air to make some music while they perform their ancient round dance. Circles and witches have long been associated, all the way back to Aeschylus and beyond. The witch concludes with another startling line. She says that they'll do all this so that the great king in their presence will feel like they have done their duty and shown him the respect he deserves. Again, if King James is in the audience, it might be quite extraordinary for this character within the play, regardless of what gifts or second sight she has, to acknowledge a person outside the world of the play. And for those less exciting nights when there's no Stuart monarchs in the house, one assumes that these lines can refer to the great King Macbeth, who has so eagerly come to visit them and experience all the things they can do. With that, the first witch makes this music and she and her weird sisters dance, perhaps even with Hecate again, and then they all vanish. Macbeth once again is left thunderstruck by their revelations, but we will save his reaction for the next episode. As always, I want to thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this particularly Jacobean episode, and that you'll join me again next time.